Welcome to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 98, recorded on March 5th of 2020. Uh, I'm your host, Don Kamarechka, and this is the podcast where we geek out about whatever happened in the photo industry news in the past week, or in this case, the past two weeks. I apologize for missing an episode. I'd asked a guest to come on. They never responded. I later realized I have email issues. I haven't been able to send an email uh, from my main email account in about two weeks. So if you haven't heard from me, uh, I am raising my fist and shouting at the tech support at HostGator. Anyhow, that's another story. With me today um, is a very good friend of mine, a photo geek, uh, a, a voice of reason, but an opinion that I generally have the, the same vibe with. I mean, Steve Brazel and I, uh, we've done a, a lot of these shows together. We were recording a critique show as well, which you can find at BehindTheShot.tv, uh, and their YouTube channel is where you'll find the visuals for that, which is really useful. Uh, Steve, thank you so much for being on another episode where we can opine on all the geekiness in the industry. It is literally one of the highlights of my week to not only be on the show, but just to see the list of stories that you make. <laughs> you know, <laughs> especially when I miss a week, there's a lot of good stuff. I'm not trying to scrape together a list of stories. In fact, we added five this week. I have no idea how long this is going to go. Um, but uh, let's get into it. And then I want to catch up with you after at least the first story. But uh, and good luck with your email issues, by the way. I thought it was just me. Uh, no, it's okay. So j just a brief aside, I had an old email account that was compromised and was sending out thousands of spam messages. And so they blocked my entire hosting account from sending emails, every email account. Uh, and I have had five support calls. Um, they know the issue and nobody can solve the issue, even though that former email account has been deleted entirely and there's no more reason to stop me from actually sending viable emails. And I called them again earlier today and apparently the tier two admin person that uh, was handling my file just wasn't in today. So good on you, HostGator. Thank you for that. Um, I'm curmudgeonly about nothing. It. And it's, yeah, you know, with tech support. I mean, Steve, you work in IT. You know, yeah. if, if somebody has a problem, you can either solve it yourself or find somebody else that can solve it. And it doesn't take two weeks to resolve an issue as simple as taking an email off of a blacklist for a spam. Filter. No, the key, the key is, I'll tell you the key. You need to find the tech support person that is willing to own the issue. Yeah. And follow it through, even if they don't solve it, to make sure you get communication. And uh, I, I will tell you right now that uh, I am not going to be staying with HostGator for very much longer. I'm going to solve this issue. And I'm going to move on to another host, uh, a uh, colleague of mine, actually a, a guy that I went to college with was uh, the CTO of, uh, of HostGator for a while and did amazing work for them. He's now broken off on his own and he's, uh, well, he's working for another upstart company. I'm going there and I'll tell you more about that when the time comes. They're not, not up and running yet, but uh, let's uh, stop that inside baseball and get into the, uh, the stories of the day or of the week. Uh, and I guess the big one that's on everybody's mind is this COVID-19 coronavirus. Um, it has hurt the sales of Corona beer. It has stopped people from booking flights to the tune of, I think I saw a figure of $113 billion being lost by the aviation industry. Uh, and that's just from passenger flights. This is affecting the world at large. Um, and so a DP review article here says coronavirus, whatever happens next, COVID-19 is already having an effect on the photo industry. There's lots of stuff within this article, 
Piggybacking on that, Nikon has confirmed that the 120 to 300 f2.8 lens is delayed due to the virus, and Canon has closed three factories due to supply chain impacted by the coronavirus. So, um, it's not just something that uh, you could get and 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 cause you illness and uh, and what have you to be afraid of. But I think that especially with an industry, the camera industry we all know has been on a bit of a downturn, um, even through a lot of new product releases, new platform announcements and so on and so forth within the last two years. Uh, this is one of those things that, especially when a lot of stuff comes from China, your, your camera might be made in Japan, might be made in Germany, but a lot of the raw components will come from other countries, uh, such as China. And that affects the entire supply chain of getting products in the market uh, and, and into your hands. So Steve, what do you think about all of this? There's a lot to unpack here. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on it, but what do you think the the the, the total cost is going to be to the industry, and will it set us back much? And actually, that to me is the key. This is an economic issue more than anything to me. I mean, yes, there's the pandemic side of it, and there's the illness side of it, but when you put it in perspective. I looked up some numbers and and first of all somebody said to me the other day it's 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 like the flu. Well, first of all, flu is influenza. This is literally a different virus. Yeah. They know very little about how it spreads or how it works. The fact that it hibernates basically, you've got 2 weeks before you show symptoms is a problem, but preliminary death estimates from the flu in 2018 to 2019 in the US alone was 34,157. 2017 to 2018 was 61,000, their estimates. The flu kills at a lower rate percentage-wise, but so many kills a lot of people, right? To me, the big story of COVID-19 or coronavirus is is the economic thing that it's going to do to the world, the camera industry, and for that matter, all of tech. So if you look at China, China is roughly 16% of the global economy, but it's 28% of manufacturing. We're talking cars, computers, phones, and it's not even to me the main parts that they build, right? It It's the subcomponents. So you can have a company like a Fuji that does everything, for example, in Japan, mm-hmm. but even though they're in Japan entirely, whereas a lot of companies do have factories in China or use factories in China, they have some com- subcomponents that come from contractors in Japan. You have Nikon, uh, who's delayed the lens. Canon has closed five factories now uh, three. in Japan. Uh, I, I heard it was three, originally claimed as five. Uh, okay, yeah, I had heard five, but either way, Apple, for example, is saying that they're not going to meet their expectations. So I think what you're going to see out of this, there's there's a uh, a concept in manufacturing nowadays known as China plus one which is you can rely on China, but you have to make sure that you have one other capability. So you're starting to see people go to Brazil, Vietnam, Philippines, other areas of Southeast Asia, Malaysia. yeah, Malaysia. That to me is going to be the big story is where do these companies move? You can't build this kind of infrastructure quickly, by the way. It takes a lot of time. And it's the tangential stuff. So think about things like conferences that are being canceled all over the place. Mobile World Congress, they buy the hotel rooms and sell them to the attendees of Mobile World Congress, 
Well, if they had to refund all of those hotel rooms, Mobile World Congress wouldn't exist. They couldn't afford it. Yeah. So you have tech people that were going to Barcelona for this conference that aren't getting refunded their rooms. You're having people not go to work, which now affects the economy of China. There's so many tangential economic areas to this. That, I think, is where we're going to see issues. And it's interesting that something like this kind of comes without any uh, any forewarning. I mean, we had similar things with SARS in the past, and uh, but it comes without any warning. And it has such a dramatic impact uh, on the economies. You mentioned Apple. You mentioned a lot of other tech companies. Uh, we're talking about the camera industry here specifically. Uh, I think that all the products that are currently in the pipeline, this affects everybody equally. Right, like there, there's no company that is escaping this, uh, no. and that's actually a good thing, because everybody is kind of hit with the same level of detrimental slowdown, uh, which means that no one person gets uh, an untoward advantage to push forward and say, "Hey, we're gonna take over the competition." The, the level of competition across all of the brands stays equal. It just means that we're not going to get stuff as quickly as we would hope. Um, which actually could play into our favor in some small way because the manufacturing of product is what is being hindered right now, but not the research and development of products to the same level. And so if people are behind the scenes engineering the next latest, greatest camera sensor, that doesn't necessarily depend on subcontract, uh, uh, subcontractors pulling parts in from China. Uh, that's more of an in-house kind of thing. And yeah, in a lot of countries- Because technically that's not manufacturing, that's- research and development. That's right. And and yes, there are companies all throughout Asia and Japan that are, you know, uh, people are working from home and so on and so forth. It's not full steam. Um, but, you know, it would be interesting to see if products are delayed because of manufacturing constraints. Um, and then, I don't know, maybe possibly enhanced as, as a, just a, the virtue of new products being available for the new manufacturing process once things continue. I don't think that's really going to be the case outside of maybe an outlier or two. Um, but for the sake of new products being slow to come to market, I think this is just a blip. Uh, and it's the manufacturing blip that's going to slow things down in the short term. But the long-term development of new products coming out when they intend on, uh, I don't think that's going to be terribly hurt here. Well, and and I think the long-term effects are going to be, companies are now going to look at, we have all our eggs in one basket. So yes, it's inexpensive to build in China, unless you can't get your products. Yeah. So people are going to start now. I think companies are going to start building infrastructure in other areas so that they are not so reliant. And by the way, I think I, I said Fuji and I meant to say Sigma is entirely in Japan then gets components from China, not Fuji. Uh, but I think that's going to be the thing. Because think about if this were to happen in, in North America, where all of these factories have to close to try and prevent the spread of this. Now, all of those workers, again, like 5 million workers or something like that, that Apple, that are related to, to production of Apple products, all of those jobs are home to try and prevent spreading it, which means they don't have money in their wallets, yeah. their manufacturing jobs. That down the road is also going to affect them paying their bills, the company being able, being able to charge the people they give components to. Uh, uh, 
Economically, this will be big in the short term. In the long term, I think it will actually make a more robust tech industry. Let's hope so, because we kind of diversify our dependencies as a result of, of the risks that we're facing right now. I know Apple had produced their uh, their trash can shaped Mac Pro in the U.S. Texas. Uh, in Texas. And uh, but, you know, how many of those trash can Macs did they sell? Ten? Uh, yeah, well, I'm sure. It, I mean, I'm, I'm joking, obviously. But. I'm, I'm sure it was in the quadruple digits, but I'm not sure much more than that. Uh, no. Because w- w- when you think about the cost of some of those uh, pieces of equipment, uh, the average consumer doesn't need it, doesn't want it. Um, but that was an inroad. That was at least an experiment for them to say, okay, if we were to make something in the US, we have a baseline for what the costs would be. Maybe not the US. Maybe uh, you make it in South America rather than in Asia, you know, where, where the costs might be lower, but you could build an infrastructure over time um, to uh, kind of kind of hedge your bets. You know, you, you don't just put everything all on one horse. I agree. Yeah. Um, so that's, I don't want to overtalk this. We hear about the uh, coronavirus in the news all the time. But I mean, b- by the way, like a coronavirus is a very common thing. The common cold is a coronavirus, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, I if I had a day job, I mean, Steve, what would you do if you just, you know, called into to work and said, you know what, I've got a coronavirus. I just can't come in today. Uh, <laughs> what kind of repercussions uh, would you have? I mean, the fear about this is so huge. Well, and I think that's the clear. biggest challenge. But let's be clear. This is a new kind of coronavirus. It, it is. spreads differently. It's a, it's in the family of coronavirus. You're, you're understanding it like- specifically COVID-19. Right. You're understanding this like a, uh, a very thoughtful and well-informed person. Yeah. The average yeah. person is, is not that. <laughs> and so, you know, what, what I was getting at is the uninformed fear uh, of something like this is scaring a lot of people. And when people are in middle management and, and just trying to maybe tell people to stay home based on these types of scenarios, it hurts productivity across the board when it's not necessarily uh, required. Uh, it's just an overabundance of caution. And I get that. I mean, you want to be cautious. But uh, I think that right now we are seeing that fear turn into something. It's manifesting itself more than the actual virus in terms of the ep- uh, uh, economic impact. I agree. All right. Uh, carrying on. Um, this one kind of, uh, I, 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 I didn't expect, but I'm not surprised. And so this was reported on Petapixel. Uh, the Sigma FP, which is their uh, current modern camera with the L mount, it's their very first, uh, to, to my knowledge, that does not use a Foveon type sensor. It uses a standard color filter array, uh, Bayer pattern sensor. Um, the, uh, the camera will get uh, cinemagraphs, 120 frames per second raw video and more in a major firmware update. So they're talking about summer of 2020 for this. And this kind of comes on the heels of a few weeks ago, Sigma announcing that their proper full frame Foveon sensor, it's on the back burner. They don't know when they're going to fully cook this thing. Uh, so th- they weren't even saying 2020. Uh, so they, they have no timeline for that new, uh, the, the, their groundbreaking technology within that. Uh, so their only product, I'm guessing that they took a bunch of engineers off of designing firmware or the software element of that new product 
If the hardware is not there, don't let these engineers sit idle. Focus them like a laser onto the FP to just make it as good as it could possibly do. T take as much of that hardware uh, uh, processing power and prowess as you can and uh, hold nothing back. So I think that's where they're starting this kind of process from. Uh, and they're well along if they're saying summer of 2020, we're now in March, uh, that these features are pretty well in development. And uh, they're not just putting the polish on now, there's still a lot of work to do. But what do you think about this whole mentality from Sigma? First of all, I like what Sigma's doing here. So it's March. Before this version 2 comes out, they are releasing a version 1.02, March 18th that has improvements and fixes. And then summer of 2020 comes version 2.0 that has these six new features in it. I have a friend who actually shoots, it's not the FP, it's a different one, but shoots a Sigma camera and he loves it for, he, he's a tour photographer and he uses it for backstage portraits of artists, just like random things. And I just like the fact that they are taking the time to really arguably aggressively come up with firmware fixes and new features for their cameras, right? I mean, it's not Canon, it's not Fuji, it's not Olympus, it's, it's so on and so forth. It's Sigma. A lot of people think of them for their lenses. A lot of people, I, I know people who would not know that Sigma makes camera bodies. Yeah. So the fact that they are aggressively pursuing things that are very interesting, you know, the 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 raw cinema DNG. Yep, uh, 120 uh, and 100 frames per second. Uh, no, that, exactly. that's only in uh, full HD. That's not 4K at that frame rate. Um, but for most people, that's absolutely fine. Cinemagraphs, though. I mean, who would they, who would even think to put cinemagraph in a body? HDR. So, uh, well, hold on, and, Steve. Well, describe what is a cinemagraph. So a cinemagraph, and, and you can get plotograph, and there's a number of other apps you can do cinemagraphs with. And a cinemagraph is a partially moving photo. Or more to the accurate point, it's a video that you choose a still frame of and choose parts of that frame to allow the video to play. So go. as an example, you might have somebody in a video pouring tea out of a teapot. Yeah. You freeze the frame on them holding it, but you allow the pouring liquid to play through the video. So all you see is somebody that's not flinching, not moving, not blinking, nobody's moving, but it's a constant flow looping video of the liquid. So that's a cinemagraph. To put that on a camera body is interesting, but here's the big one. Don't underestimate the SDK. Oh, I was, I was hoping you would support. mention that. A, an SDK, a software development kit, um, Correct. allows any developer any any person with some coding experience to develop uh, an app, a plugin, a feature, uh, a tool um, that can interface with the camera's core functionality uh, and do something well to the limits of the S that the SDK of allows. Course, right, and so an SDK will obviously have certain limits. You don't get bare metal support from that, but. Uh, an SDK could allow somebody to uh, to design software that detects, uh, I don't know, like um, uh, like a lightning strike about to happen and then fire off to do a lightning trigger kind of thing or uh, to detect when uh, an animal is coming into the frame and fire off a, a rate of fire uh, based on the size of the frame uh, or the, the size of the animal within the frame, the closer it gets, the faster the camera might fire. These are things that the camera wouldn't be able to do. There'd be menus upon menus upon menus. But if you wanted to set one of these things up as like a trail cam or something, you wanted to set the, uh, this up to photograph lightning to do just about anything that is off 
the beaten path that is not going to be included in the camera software to begin with, then you can find a third-party developer that can uh, look into this SDK, program something, and add extra features to the camera. And I love this, especially because uh, Sigma is part of the L-Mount alliance with uh, Leica and Panasonic. And there's no news from them. But at the very least, this opens up at least something about the camera, maybe about the platform itself, for third-party people to really sink their teeth into. And that cascades, I hope, beyond just Sigma itself. Well, and when when you talk SDK, it's not just stuff that you normally think of in a handheld normal camera. Somebody could easily write the ability to do a hyperlapse. Yeah. Or write their own time-lapse features. There's so many things that people could write in an SDK with that support. That to me, and again, this is Sigma. This is not what you can, this is a major lens brand, I would argue now, with the, oh, yeah. the Cinema Art Series lenses. But nobody thinks of them as a camera body company. And that's a super smart move. Now, you look at other third-party uh, software developers for cameras. I mean, you could look at uh, what's been done with Magic Lantern and the 5D series and, and other cameras cascading beyond that. But um, they took the manufacturer specs and they actually pushed them beyond what the camera was originally capable with in terms of bit rate and so on, uh, at least with the 5D Mark II. I haven't followed it in further cameras. Let's be clear, though. That's a whole new firmware. That's not tying into existing. That, that, that's the delineation that I'm making here is because you We've had these companies that were doing this reconstructive effort uh, and trying to get as much possible performance, pushing limits and breaking things uh, to get things to work. Whereas in this case, you have an infrastructure, you have walls that you cannot move. Uh, you can just work within the box that you are given. So it's not going to be as dramatic as some third party uh, enterprising people that re-engineer things from the ground up. But at least it's condoned by Sigma. Like they're letting you do this and they're encouraging you to do this and they're giving you tools to expand the functionality of their camera. And who knows? Maybe there's some features that will really catch on and they will roll those into the, uh, to, the, uh, to the native firmware as things progress. I have no idea where this will go. I know Sony has done an SDK. You could have apps on their cameras before and that had some limited successes there. Sigma's not the first, um, but it's their first attempt at it. And I really hope that they take this idea and they run with it based on what people design for it, because you can get an easy cult following if this offers features that no other camera has. Even if it's just a hundred different niches, it's a hundred different small markets that you are now adapted to. It's a it's a number of photographers that can experiment and creatives that can experiment and play. Exactly. And uh, piggybacking on this, uh, Panasonic has updated its L-mount lens roadmap with two new primes. But much to my chagrin, they have dropped the 100 millimeter f2.8 macro from their current lineup. Uh, now, it's not to say that it won't come in the future. Uh, I'm still hopeful for that. But you're trading two lenses for one, uh, two lenses that are prime. So uh, they're probably more appealing if you have a solid infinity focus to whatever uh, their f 1.8 lenses um, in their current lineup right now we're waiting for a 24 a 50 an 80 
as well as a wide angle zoom, a standard uh, zoom lens and a telephoto zoom lens based on what this uh, roadmap says. Uh, and we have no real details beyond that. But as a macro photographer, I kind of have to swallow this a little bit. Because if I'm sacrificing that, which I already have a whole bunch of macro lenses, and they don't benefit from the latest advances in autofocus and image stabilization and so on and so forth. Um, if you switch that for two primes that are far more useful to the general photographic population, uh, and presumably uh, it's, if it's an f1.8 lens it's not going to be a really high priced piece of gear it's going to be something that's affordable that really uh, fills out your kit uh i'm okay with this what do you think i agree but the the first of all the 85 1.8 if you're shooting panasonic that's going to become your go-to portrait lens as it was for canon and nikon and so many others right yeah but arguably, I look at a 100 macro the same way. I have the original Canon 102.8 macro love and lens. love it. They've yep. got the Mark II now that has IS in it. That is such a, I mean, with Nikon, it's 105, as I recall. But still, that range is is just a standard 60 or 100 macro for choices when I first saw this, I thought it's got to be a typo that that's missing. Somebody neglected to put that on the chart because I don't know if you already have it, why that would not be on there. Well, I mean, who knows what, again, the, uh, the coronavirus stuff has been stopping in parts for different things. And, um, it shouldn't hurt the research and development, but it might hurt the manufacturing of something. Uh, so you never know. Uh, it's my hope that, Hey, they've got, uh, you know, a prototype and they're, you know, thumbs up on it and said, okay, we're just going to have to wait wait on this a little bit. I, I don't have any knowledge on it, but I do know that uh, I've started to get some uh, native L-mount glass from other parties. I've got a Trio Plan 100 that's in a native L-mount now. Uh, Meyer Optic have uh, uh, have done good on producing those, and and, and they have them now. Uh, at least the initial shipment has been made from B&H. That's where I got mine. Uh, it's not a macro lens. I would add extension tubes to it, but there's none available for the platform yet. So there's always room to grow. Uh, and we'll see where that all goes. With what Sigma is producing for the platform, Leica has new lenses coming out. Panasonic has added a lens to their lineup. It's not like this is slowing down. This is increasing. Um, and I think that it does make sense to have the niche lenses, like a, a fisheye lens, a macro lens, a tilt shift lens, etc., uh, to come out when the time is right, when everybody else in the mass public is satisfied with the offerings. So, um, yeah, onward and upward, I think, with what Sigma and Panasonic are producing within this platform. Um, now, Steve, uh, what's new with you? Uh just doing the normal stuff, shooting shows and and doing the podcast and really honestly having a blast just doing all the, the image critiques that we're doing. I messed up on today's when we recorded it. I left it as unlisted, but realized to make it public later. So we're learning as we go, at least I am. <laughs> uh, and that's pretty much it. I've just got some really good guests that are lined up. I, I was just at WPPI hanging out with our friend Larry from Platypod. Yeah, how was WPPI? WPPI, actually, it was my best WPPI, I think, ever. I, I didn't go into a ton of classes, went into a few, but I did some interviews for the podcast that I'm going to be editing, hopefully, over this weekend and, and getting out uh, soon. I spent a lot of time at the Canon booth talking to different Canon explorers of light because Canon was just so welcoming to put those great photographers in front of me and ask these questions. 
I enjoyed that. But the thing that really struck me, I got to see the uh, R5, the Canon EOS R5. It was under glass. I actually looked at the guy at Canon and went, be honest with me. It's an empty body, right? He goes, oh, no, it turns on. I said, it's an actual working. He goes, I've taken pictures with it. Well, he, here's the thing about that. And and I have, um, I've had my hands on some early cameras from Panasonic. Um, the reason why they don't want to get those into the hands of people is because if you press the wrong button, the software might crash and reboot the camera. I mean, it's not well. Not complete. only that, but they don't want you. Rev- they also don't want you reviewing that kind of firmware. That's exactly it. And hardware harshly when it's not even near done. Exactly, and so you don't want a, a bad word going out about something because it is not complete. I remember when I got my hands on uh, an S1 body for the first time. It was in like firmware version zero point three. It was so far away from being the finished product. Uh, and there is no way I would ever suggest to any company to put that in the hands of a cynical reviewer um, because they're not going to understand exactly what is going on in terms of the development process. Uh, and and as things get fleshed out and you get closer to firmware 1.0, then yeah, of course, you put it in the hands of people because you can't make that same kind of rebooting error that's all been annihilated. And there's always things that will be fixed in 1.1 and so on and so forth. But um, to put it under glass is uh, is common practice. They're not the only people well, to do that. And and le- summing up really WPBI, at Photoshop World, I was able to play with the Platyball prototype uh, at a dinner. Platypod, I was at a dinner with them and they happened to have it and I played with it. And they actually had it in their booth because they've now announced it and they've started the Kickstarter, et cetera. And so now I've played with it on two different occasions. And I just have to say, I this thing is amazing to me. I don't use a lot of ball heads or tripods in what I shoot, but I do use them. Mm-hmm. And I have a lovely Acrotech ball head that I love. But I got to tell you, this this product is pretty freaking amazing. It's um, It's like you never have to figure it out. You never have to learn it because there's no learning. It's just intuitive. Um you just, you, I have, and I was using it this past weekend uh, in a difficult way, uh, an Enduro five-way pan head that lets me really dial stuff in really securely and solidly. But you've got all these knobs and dials and you don't remember which one does what. In the past, I've actually accidentally, uh, the, the top plate dial looks identical to the Arca Swiss release thing because they're the exact same knobs and you don't want to accidentally use the wrong one because they're never in the same position twice uh and so yeah the the platter ball i didn't see the same version as you saw at wppi they've uh, progressed it by at least one revision in prototypes um and uh i i know uh larry uh, larry t behind uh, uh platypod and platyball um he is a perfectionist when it comes down to this and he is oh yeah he is going to make sure that this is as good as it can possibly be uh and i'm really i think there's about uh, 8 or 9 days left in the kickstarter campaign right now uh it's going to i'm trying to think cuz i'm airing my episode next today's as we're recording this is the 5th and i'm airing a week from today uh and then it ends 3 days after that i think it ends the 15th of march okay 
So uh, anybody that hasn't taken a look at this thing and you want to uh, find your tripod to be more friendly to you, to use it more often because you don't want that to be a barrier to your photography, but it's cumbersome and you don't take it out every time, this might solve some of those problems. But I- I'm glad you caught up with them at WPPI. I, I hear It was fun. We went out to dinner with uh, uh, Larry and the group and some other photographers and Skip Cohen. And let me say, I'm not sponsored by Platypod. These are my own opinions. Uh, by no means is this sponsored. I just really, I really dig the way this company, dig, boy, I age myself. <laughs> I dig the way this company thinks, right? The stuff is so engineered, like most things you can go, well, you know, I like in a backpack, great design. I wish they'd put a pocket here. And there's just none of that with their products. I don't find anything where I, I'm able to say, I just wish you'd done this one little extra thing. And I, and I like that. I like that innovation. Well, there we go. Thank you for that. Um, what have you shot lately besides, uh, you know, well, what concerts have you been to? Uh, just last Friday, less than a week ago, I went and shot uh, Zach Wilde and Black Label Society. And it's just, if you've never seen Zach Wilde, who's well known as one of the guitarists for Ozzy Osbourne, co-wrote some of the songs, played on some of the, the key albums and songs. And Zach Wilde is just a blast to photograph hair big muscly guy plays amazing guitar and is active it's everything you want in the challenging photography i would imagine i mean the concert photography is always high contrast the dynamic range is extreme uh the action is somewhat unpredictable and you have to capture the atmosphere the um the emotion of something that disappears in a note And well, and I'm actually really excited because I'm a Rage Against the Machine fan and they are going back out on tour. They're going to be down by me and Coachella. Couldn't get tickets anywhere near here. I mean, I could go to Coachella, but I don't want to go to Coachella. (laughs) Uh, Couldn't get any tickets anywhere near here. So we bought tickets for Portland. We're going to fly to Portland to see Rage Against the Machine. And I have also applied for my standard photo credentials. And I'm going to take my camera gear and hopefully photograph Rage Against the Machine for their Portland show. And I'm super excited. Oh, that would be awesome. I, I hope you get it. Um, but oh, what, what if you turn the tables a little bit? And what if a band, like if you were the top of your game, the best concert photographer in the world, and they wanted to hire you as a photographer to, to film their band, but they had different religious or sexual views than you do. And your religion basically said, no, I'm not comfortable doing that. And you refuse. Is that okay? This is a very poor segue to our next story, um, which uh, from Petapixel reporting, uh, the DOJ, uh, Department of Justice, backs Christian photographer who is afraid law will, quote, force her to shoot same-sex weddings. Now, Steve, I'm not an American. I'm a Canadian. So I want to send. So you say. So I want to send this one to you <laughs> to start the uh, you know uh, hit hit the first ball off the bat here. Oh boy. Uh, okay. So let me just start by saying, when I saw you had picked this story, I was partially joyed and partially like the messages that are going to come. But it needs to be discussed. It really does. And let let me start by saying, neither one of us are lawyers, so. As we debate things that are legal, we don't know what we're talking about, right? Right. But that said, Chelsea Nelson has teamed up with the Alliance Defending Freedom, with it, which is a conservative group, 
to challenge a law in Louisville, Kentucky. The law is called the Fairness Ordinance. And, I, and this part stuck out to me. This ordinance is 20 years old, right? This ordinance has been around since 2000. And basically what it does is it prevents discrimination based on sexual orientation. 20 years, haven't had a problem with this. Nobody's had a problem with this. She is claiming that it infringes her freedom of religion and freedom of speech because it, and I want to stress this in bold, all caps, 24 point Helvetica black, because it could be used to force her to deal with same-sex weddings. The reason I'm stressing that is she, to anybody's knowledge, has never even been approached by a same-sex couple. She's suing preemptively. The reason it matters is the Department of Justice, which is very unusual, the Department of Justice filed what's called a statement of interest, citing the famous case of the baker in Colorado and which go look it up if you need to. That baker won, by the way. Photography is, quote, expressive and therefore a form of speech. That's the story. <clears throat> okay. Well, if we dial this back to 20 years ago, when not everybody was using a digital camera, they, they were there, but the majority of working pros weren't using them. Um, then, you know, if you were to be shooting with a film camera and your views might have been against somebody for whatever religious belief it might be, you don't want to single that out, but just anything. And uh, you shot the film. That's actually, before you go on, that's actually an important point is defining a religious belief. Right. Right. I, I can argue that this is against my, and a lot of times it's not formed as a religious belief. It's stated as a strongly held belief. Okay, but Steve, it, oh, let's kind of play this on on, a, on an unusual way here. If you go back to Leviticus, and I think there's some other uh, place in the Bible that says this, if you are wearing clothes that are made of two different fabrics simultaneously, say like uh, wool and cotton, well, that's a sin. Uh, it, it's against the uh, whatever, and I'm paraphrasing here. I don't have the exact passages in front of me. I know I've read them at some point, but that's not okay. So if the bride is wearing a cotton polyester mixed dress, that could be considered against your religion. I mean, if you dial it all the way to that, it doesn't have to be about sexual orientation. They could take this in so many different directions. But I, to go back to my point, well, uh, I, I, I want to uh, just mention about the film era because the images might have been shared with close family. They might have been made in frames on their wall. They wouldn't have been posted on social media. Social media wasn't really a thing back then, at least not what it is today. And so uh, the images created by a photographer in that era would have been taken. They, uh, artful or not, they could have simply been technician work. Uh, you know, it, if you call all photography art, well, what do you call a crime scene investigator with a camera? What do you call an x-ray technician? These are all photographs in a, in a roundabout way. Um, the x-ray, my gosh, that's a great example. What if I'm an x-ray tech? I'm taking a picture. And what if I find out that you're, of a sexual orientation I don't agree with. Right. I'm not going to take your x-ray. I mean, this you could take this so many... I did weddings, DJed weddings for 18 years. And there were many couples that I worked for that I firmly knew 
that, that wedding's not going to succeed. There's no <laughs> way these two are going to last more than two years. It doesn't mean, and they may have had other issues I don't know about. It doesn't mean I'm not going to work for them. And the analogy I would make to the extreme is, and I said this to you in the green room, what if there's a waiter in a restaurant? Take it away from photography, right? Because when when you start setting precedent, it can, not always, but it can transfer into other areas of life. What if there is a waiter who is a devout Nazi, doesn't wear it on the street, but is in his head? Well, Nazi isn't head. technically a religion, you know, put that in play, but, but still. But it's a strongly held belief. Right. Right. And what if they don't want to wait? And we've already addressed this in the law. They don't want to wait on somebody that's Jewish. They don't want to wait on somebody of color. Right. They're slippery slope. It, man. it just to me, you, you don't. Okay, here we go. I'm going to say it and I'm going to get the emails. I know I will. You cannot call it your freedom if in the act of supporting it, you take away other people's freedoms. This is true. This is so totally true. Um, and, you know, I, I look at one phrase from, uh, from the judgment here, and it says the, Supre- uh, the Supreme Court uh, has made plain that the government cannot compel individuals to mouth support for views they find objectionable. Now, oh boy. So to mouth support. How uh, th- this is such an ambiguous, vague statement. If if I take somebody's photograph, I don't mouth support for their existence or their decision to get married. I am simply photographing that event. If I'm a photo, exactly. if I'm a photojournalist taking photos of atrocities and war crimes or foreign leaders, I don't mouth support for that foreign leader. Great analogy, right? I, I do not Great believe in analogy. what they believe, right? Yeah, no, no. You know what? That last one is is a perfect example. And I take, by the way, when I shoot concerts, there are times that I'm at a concert and I'm not allowed to use any of the pictures based on a contract that I sign, a photo release that I sign until I get approval from the band. Yeah. Right? There are times I take pictures or other people take pictures and you can't even tell people you took the pictures. Yeah. And I've done the same. I've, I've had some corporate clients that refuse, like I've signed NDAs. I can't talk about it. Right? I cannot in any way mention my involvement in the project, and they, of course, won't mention my name. And and that's fine. That's in the contract. Why why can't that be part of this idea? You would be in no way mouthing support for uh, for that because you are contractually obligated not to. Right? There are so many problems with this that bother me, and it all boils well, down to human rights. We're all just uh, people. Yes. And the biggest thing to me is a. This is a non-existent issue for her. Yeah. It's almost, and I don't know this is the case before somebody calls me and says that's not the case, but it it almost feels like one of those scenarios where the lawyers and the organization, the conservative organization came to her and said, let's pursue this because it has not even happened to her yet. But my understanding and reading up on this was most legal scholars and experts that they had talked to said, this is a non-case. There is no way she'll win this case. And then the DOJ jumped in and filed that statement of interest. Well, hopefully it won't change anything, but but you never know. You never know. And and let's kind of leave it at there. We've kind of talked all of our talking points. We can't make a decision one way or another, um, but uh, at, at least we can see where politics and photography intersect. And I don't like to talk about politics too much uh, in, this, uh, in this podcast, but... In our next story, um, there's a lot of fake news out there. 
There's a lot of fakeness in the photographic space. Um, and another Petapixel article uh, uh, written says, how to spot fake photos of fake people online by, uh, by Mike Solomon. And, uh, you know, I understood that AI had gotten to a point where it could generate faces by, you know, taking cheeks from one person, eyes from another, mouth from another, ears, whatever, and manipulate and throw them together and you get a new face that never But in existed. your head, what did you picture the result was? Uh, I didn't picture it to be as organically um, transparent. I mean, yes, if you know what to look for, and this article points out a bunch of stuff, especially right off the top, things that might not be quite right about how these algorithms are designed right now. Um, but the images get better and better as the article goes on, and it makes me uh, weep a little because it, it made me uncomfortable looking at these. Yeah, because so many of these are so good unless you know the flaws to look at. Right, like uh, an earlobe that is too low on one side, or earrings that are mismatched on women, um, or you know some weirdness in the background. That's a key thing in a lot of these images because they're focusing more on the face, and the background is a secondary component. Um, every the unitooth. I didn't notice the flaw in the first picture in the post until they mentioned unitooth, and I went, "Oh, yeah." It's like a unibrow, but with your teeth. Well, because they're trying to composite teeth together and they haven't figured out the proper separation and, and the maximum size based on, uh, you know, on, on human biology. And so I look at all these images and I encourage everybody, take a look at this. The, the, this you have to see. Go to photogeekweekly.com. We'll have a link in the show notes to this article. Uh, and you will see all of these faces and every single one in this article are fake. Some have very obvious flaws. Some you would never be able to know unless you knew all of the tells of the AI designing them that they were not real people. Yeah, it was, again, I, I pictured AI created people as being this weird patchy mismatch of body parts or facial parts. And before I looked at the article, I'm like, all right, I know what this is going to be. And then I got there and it's like, wow, these, I mean, these are really shockingly good. What was interesting to me was, and they show you examples of where it might've been taken from that you ended up with this artifact, but apparently the AI is often training on people that are on a stage giving a talk with like a headset. Mic. Yes. And you see this weird artifact like this, like purple tumor on this one guy's chin exactly. uh, that clearly is not real. It definitely defines him as a cyborg. Um, but the AI just thought that was okay because that's where a microphone would have been from people on a stage. Um, exactly. The problem here, And the Steve, other thing it stressed was, Go, go ahead. No, the, the problem here, Steve, is as soon as we point these flaws out, the AIs can now know that that is a flaw, reprogram. Well, they don't reprogram themselves yet, thank God. But the people making these AIs will- That you know of. They, well, let's hope we're not there yet. Uh, but I well, There's one behind you. Uh, uh, oh. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, the idea of this, this technology getting better from where it is, it's going to happen. Th there's no question about oh, that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And an article like this that points flaws uh, or points fingers at the flaws of every issue that these algorithms have, that's just fodder for the engineers to chow down on and make better algorithms. Which for the right purpose is great, but we all know that technologies get used in ways that they weren't originally intended. Well, uh, these are stills. Wait until this becomes video, right? 
Exactly. What's interesting is the flaws almost all related around, not all, but almost all related to symmetry. Yeah. You mentioned the earlobe. You can see it when somebody has glasses on. Sometimes there's two eyebrows or two sets of eyelashes. It doesn't understand symmetry. Now that, and I'm sure they already understood it, but the more you think about that, I'm sure that's correctable over time. It'll be interesting to see where this goes, but also I think in some ways dangerous to see where this goes. Well, uh, when you want to, especially when, okay, th- these are fake people, but w- what if they're modeling real people uh, in different ways, which we actually have better technology for? That's even more dangerous. Um, right. But what if you have like a total fake person that becomes a uh, an icon in some way? They're puppeted by anybody. They're not a real person. Uh, it sounds science fiction. It sounds Black Mirror-ish. Um, but I don't see that being impossible within the next decade. Uh, and with the political climate always, you know, in an, uh, an election churn and so many of it will be misused. Um so uh, there it is. Faces that you see, never believe them unless you know the person personally and you are there taking the picture. Because if you weren't, there's really, it's hard to believe what you see anymore. And you haven't noticed that I have three eyes and only one earlobe. Yes. Well, <laughs> that that is the magic of science there for you, Steve. Um, but uh, across races, across genders, across different skin tones, it all matches. It's all so perfect. Uh, and it's believable. And the yeah. majority of people looking at photographs will not question it in any way. Uh, that you know, I love when we dig into the critique show and I find tiny little things you do too, like halos around certain elements or things that have been pushed too far, things that have been cloned incorrectly that we can spot as photographers and we tell people to do a better job at that. Uh, well, they're, th- those people are, of course, being better photographers. But if you train a neural net to do the same thing, um, then uh, you end up with... Uh, I welcome our robot overlords. Uh, I, I cannot do anything but that because they will surpass us in almost every way. Yep. Yep. Just hopefully not in my lifetime. (laughs) Okay. Uh, we uh, have a rare opportunity to do a fifth story because I figured some of them might be a little bit fast. and I just couldn't leave this one off the docket. Um, a video from Matthew Stern, uh, says the Lomopod number one is the, quote, worst camera he's ever tested. Uh, Steve, what is the Lomopod number one? First of all, it's the worst camera just on name. <laughs> yeah. Lomomod number one. Lomomod number one is a cardboard, do-it-yourself, build-it-yourself, medium format Camera, but again, I want to stress. So this is, it is a car. This is if IKEA decided to make you know the cardboard backing stuff that goes in the back yes. of your dresser. That's one of those components that you put on. If they decided to cut that material up into uh, little puzzle pieces that you stick together, tongue and groove style, to make a camera, what could possibly go wrong? And then on that camera, they put a lens that you can fill with liquid different liquids to create different effects. So you could put beer in there. You could put iced tea in there. You could put water in there uh, and just create these different effects. That's what the Lomo Mod number one is. But, and again, medium format is interesting. 
But the key part as we go through this story to keep in mind is it's cardboard. Yep. And, you know, a a liquid lens is not a new thing, and it could, in fact, be quite revolutionary if done right. If you could inject more water into a membrane that changes the shape of the lens, you can then, especially in a complex lens format, instead of just moving lenses around, if you could dynamically change the shape of lenses, you could make much better zoom lenses as a result from that, right? There is merit to that technology that is so horribly misplaced here. Yeah. And when, when you get into the details, so he had two cameras at least that I know of. The first one took him two hours to assemble. The parts didn't fit together properly. The back wouldn't close properly. So then he decided to build the second camera. On the second camera, he built it. The image quality A was bad, but there's a film advance wheel also made of cardboard. <laughs> So the film advance wheel in the second camera broke. So now he can't advance the film. He was able to take the film advance wheel from the first camera that the back wouldn't close, put it on the second camera. The silver lining in this story is he actually did like some of the images. Uh, well, I, I mean, once you've done this entire process, you have to fall in love with something about it. I mean, you can't just hate all of the time you've wasted. And so there, I think that there's a bias related to that. I don't think any of the images are exceptional in any way. You wouldn't put your artistic efforts into creating a wonderful image with this camera as the tool to do so. Um, but if you want, if you ever had the desire, Steve, to build your own camera from core components, uh, well, I mean, a lot of people have made shoeboxes into cameras with a pinhole, and they have produced images that are arguably better and more reliably exposed than what this camera can produce. So uh, the Lomo Mod number one, uh, I actually, I kind of want this camera now, not because I, I want to use it, but I want to sit it on my shelf of anachronisms. I want right. to sit it next to my uh, Lytro lipstick light field camera. I want to I want to sit it next to some of my 3D lenses and 3D cameras from yesteryear uh, just to say, yes, people actually thought this was a good idea. Uh, yeah. And uh, and that's it. I, if I ever shoot it, I would break it. So it would just be a prop to put on display. It's the camera equivalent of a coffee table book. It's a, it's a coffee table camera. Well, a, a conversation piece, at the very least. It's a yeah. piece of sculpture that you have made yourself. But it's as much of a sculpture as it is coloring in a page of a coloring book. It's, it's not really worth your efforts. Uh, but it is fun to see that somebody tried to do this as a company and who around the, the table of executive uh, executives to create this product. How was everybody in unison to say, Oh yeah, this is a good idea. Yeah. Isn't that a meeting you want to be in? Oh, I would the, love first to of have all, that the guy recorded. who had to pitch it. Right. <laughs> and, and I got an idea. We'll make it cardboard. And everyone going, oh my gosh, Don, that's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. And And not one, there had to be one person that went, you sure about this? And you're fired. No. uh, (laughs) Yeah. um, Okay. Well, we can't talk much more about that, but check it out. Check out the video of this camera. Uh, Again, in the show notes at photogeekweekly.com because it's bizarre and unusual enough to at least garner my interest but 
don't spend money on it. Actually, how much is it? I didn't see that in the article here. You know what? That's a good question. I didn't see it either. I it's it, it cannot be expensive. If it's expensive, uh, then they would have at least listed that here because it would have been so much more, uh, you know, newsworthy like that Yashica Y35. Which it's it's I'm I'm googling it as we speak because now I have to know. Here it is in the Lomography shop. The Lomo Mod number one is a whopping. 60 bucks. Um, well, US. I've spent more going out to the movies with my better half. Uh, would she allow me to take those funds? Would I get spousal approval to say, hey, can I have a lark with this camera? I Oh, yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe. Uh, although I would rather still go out to the movies. Uh, so <laughs> budget accordingly, but there you have it. Now, Steve, picks of the week. Uh, why don't you go first? So... I'm going to change my pick of the week from what I sent you because my pick of the week was going to be the platable. Well, we talked about it. We fawned over it and we should, because that is a, a product that you know, I should reiterate, go check it out. Platyball.com P L A T Y B B A L L.com. Uh, and it'll bring you to the Kickstarter campaign. We love it. We know we love it. So what else you got? Yeah, and we kind of already talked about it. So rather than do that, and and don't misunderstand me, it could still be my pick of the week. It's just we already talked about it. So instead, I'm going to change to something just completely off the wall. When I photograph concerts, I carry two camera bodies, but I carry three lenses. I have to have a way to carry that other lens. So I might have a 16 to 35 or a 15 fish on my left camera. And on my right camera, it switches between the 24 to 70 and the 70 to 200. When I'm switching lenses, I need to have a place to drop it and grab the other one. And I use a think tank belt system. I've heard of this. Uh, they've had a I few love, of what, 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 what do you use? What do you find the most effective? I use, I have four pouches on my think tank belt. I have the thicker padded belt, but the pouches come in two forms. The pouches come in thick padded f- pouches. I don't like those for me, and I'll tell you why. I'm in a crowded photo pit, and they retain their round shape even when they're empty. And so they get in the way, and they hit things. Then they have the soft-sided pouches that are just Velcro lids. And the soft-sided pouches, when there's nothing in them, you push on them, and they collapse to almost flat, which is nice. And I carry four. I carry a 70 to 200 pouch on my right front pocket on the belt and with, with the Think Tank belt. And that usually has the 70 to 200 in it. On my left hip, I carry more of a 24 to 70 pouch. So if I have the 24 to 70 on, I have a pouch to dump that one. Uh Then get the one out of the other pouch. I have a drop zone. But then on my right back hip, I carry their beverage pouch. And sometimes if it's an all day festival, I put a Gatorade in it and it has two pockets on the side. I put my business cards in. But for a normal festival where I'm not there as long and don't need a beverage with me, I keep spare batteries, memory cards, cleaning cloths, my earplugs, that type of thing. And then on the left hip, I have a pouch, which I don't always carry on me, that is their flash pouch uh, that you can carry a flash with you if you need. And for me, rather than carry a shoulder bag, which hurts your shoulder when you're wearing it all day, which is what I used to do, this puts the weight on my hips, takes it off my shoulders. It's extremely comfortable, and I love my thing. It's tank accessible. Gear. That's the thing. Because if you have it all in a in a bag, you got to take the bag off. Or you know, if it's a sling bag, you can you know uh, uh, flip it around and so on and so forth. But it's still far more work than having everything accessible. As you mentioned, you have a uh, a drop pouch. Um, 
sort of like you're uh, in programming and you're switching variables. You got to have a place to put one uh, yep. before you, you pick up the other. And so in, in that context, it makes perfect sense. And I had looked at this kit uh, and it, it, it made a lot of sense to me but I don't shoot anything that would make sense to use it. Um, so it's not for everybody, but if you, if it is useful for you, concert photography, event photography, uh, anything, uh, press photography, photojournalism as well, where you need to have really quick access to switch equipment, a wedding photographer could use this quite exceptionally well. Um, then there you have it. Uh, what, what is the cost? Uh, I don't remember. It's actually <laughs> not very bad. But one of the other things I love about it is we don't wear, or at least we shouldn't wear, backpacks in a photo pit because it's busy and you turn around and your backpack hits somebody's camera lens. Yeah. So lowering it to your hips and making most of them collapsible, a couple of them do stick out a little bit, uh, just is much more conducive to the community environment in a, in a concert photo. Pit. That's right. Um, so my pick is something new from NovoFlex. And uh, I, I do a lot of uh, high-end focus stacking. I say high-end because they're automated focusing rails on like very high magnification uh, uh, objectives, 20x, 50x objectives. And uh, so uh, previously, there haven't been many players in this space. Uh, the uh, stack shot from Cognosis I've used and I've loved for a long time, but um, it was difficult to calibrate at extreme magnifications. It never really hit the start point properly, uh, even if I did calibrate the backlash and so on and so forth. So uh, I've had the opportunity to test out the Novoflex Castel Micro. And the Castel Micro is an automated rail, just uh, as you might expect. You've got a control mechanism that you can dial in a start point, an end point, and the number of frames in between. Or if you want to calculate things further, the uh, the exact space between frames, if you know exactly what your depth of field is, th there's some uh, flexibility here. And it on its own uh, is just a rail. You could, uh, it's Arca Swiss compatible. You put your camera on it and uh, you could put whatever macro lens or microscope objective you have. That's not the, the pick. The pick is just the rail and the control box. And they have uh, wireless triggers for just about every camera on the market. Uh, of course, I'm using the, uh, the Lumix S cameras right now. They've got a cable. They've got everything that I need. Um, and interestingly enough, they connect the controller to the, um, uh, to, to the main rail itself with an Ethernet cable. And it's just a standard wired Ethernet cable. I subbed in one of my own, and you could just put in whatever length you want. You can be much further away from the controller than the actual rail itself for remote uh, remote purposes. Um, and uh, it's not cheap. Uh, this is about 1,800 euro on the Novoflex website. The price may vary based on country. Uh, the price is worth it if you have a legitimate use for a bang on perfect calibrates every time it starts focusing rail. Uh, and I have had, uh, I, I had an early pre-production model to start with and there was a few issues. They replaced that with one that is a production model now that I'm testing and all of those issues are gone. It is, um, it will make shots that would otherwise be incredibly tedious, cumbersome, and maybe impossible to do without it. So they've done a stepping motor uh, focusing rail as good as I think you can do. 
uh, in terms of just static focusing in a linear fashion. Cognosis still takes the cake with, they've got a rotational platform, they've got a much more configurable uh, controller. But if you just need focus stacking and you need it to be as good as it could possibly be, the Novoflex Castel Micro, I think is what I'll recommend here as my pick of the week. And links at the blog post. At photogeekweekly.com to take a look at that. And uh, and you can gear yourself up. They actually have, uh, and I'm testing this as well, uh, a, a tube lens specifically designed to be used with Michutoyo uh, Plan APO microscope objectives, which are sort of the, the work, uh, workhorse, the... Um, the go-to microscope objective for photo purposes in this space. Uh, and they'll, they'll, they'll say, eh, yeah, I'm starting to lose my ability to speak at this point. They will sell you the lenses as well uh, from like 1X all the way up to 50X. But uh, if you put one of those lenses on that camera, uh, you're guaranteed success uh, on this focusing rail. So yeah, that is my pick. And uh, Steve, we've been talking for a while, and I'm pretty tired at this point. We didn't mention it on the show, but we had some chaos at home where uh, my daughter had some night terrors last night and leaded me to uh, take her home from daycare early. And, uh, you know, the joys of parenthood and all that, which I'm sure you know. Um, all too well. All too well. So uh, with that said, we've talked the shop. Let's get out and shoot. <laughs> 